Hey listeners, welcome back. And by listeners, I mean you, Rania. <laughs> um, I got a request to do another recording, so here I am again. And yeah, we'll go on with the meaning of marriage. Uh, before chapter one starts, it uh, there's a Bible passage that's written, so I'll read that. Ephesians 5:18 through 33. This is the NIV New International Version. <coughs> Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the Word, and to present her to Himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as just for the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the Church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Okay, so that's probably the most famous passage in the Bible about、uh, marriage. It's like used in a lot of weddings, Christian weddings, and yeah, it's just.、Uh, You know, and there's a lot of controversy sometimes because some women will hear it and be like, "What? I have to submit to my husband? It's the 21st century. The Bible is so old, and you know they just think that the man should lead and the woman should just be like a slave." And but it's not like that.、Um, I mean, I don't know too too much, but I do understand to a certain extent that it's not like that.、Um, I'm pretty sure he's going to address it in the book. Uh, but yeah, enough talking from me. <laughs> Let's read chapter one. Chapter one is titled "The Secret of Marriage." There's a quote. It starts with, "A man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh." This is a profound mystery. That was part of Ephesians five, verse thirty-one to thirty-two. All right, here we go. Stay with me, baby. 
I'm tired of listening to sentimental talks on marriage. At weddings, in church, and in Sunday school, much of what I've heard on the subject has as much depth as a Hallmark card. While marriage is many things, it is anything but sentimental. Marriage is glorious, but hard. It's a burning joy and strength, and yet it is also blood, sweat, and tears, humbling defeats and exhausting victories. No marriage I know more than a few weeks old could be described as a fairy tale come true. Therefore, it is not surprising that the only phrase in Paul's famous discourse on marriage in Ephesians 5 that many couples can relate to is verse 32 printed above. Sometimes you fall into bed after a long, hard day of trying to understand each other, and you can only sigh. <sighs> this is all a profound mystery. At times, your marriage seems to be an unsolvable puzzle, a maze in which you feel lost. I believe all this, and yet there's no relationship between human beings that is greater or more important than marriage. In the Bible's account, God himself officiates at the first wedding, Genesis 2, 22-25. And when he and when the man sees the woman, he breaks into poetry and exclaims, At last! Everything in the text proclaims that marriage, next to our relationship to God, is the most profound relationship there is. And that is why, like knowing God himself, Coming to know and love your spouse is difficult and painful, yet rewarding and wondrous. The most painful, the most wonderful, this is the biblical understanding of marriage. And there has never been a more important time to lift it up and give it prominence in our culture. Hmm. That was a interesting section. I definitely didn't think about it that way like you know that god was officiating the first wedding between adam and eve and you know that just like how our relationship and knowing god is really difficult sometimes to like you know hear god and know about god and learn about god and to build a relationship with god it's just the same with your spouse and yet it's like the second most important relationship after God. It's like you and God, and then you and your spouse. Spouse is another word for like the other married person. Like, you know, like husband means guy married person and wife means female married person. Spouse is just one of the married people. So yeah, in case you didn't know that word, but you'll probably be like, I knew that word, maybe baby. It's the same in French. <laughs> I don't know. I love you. All right. The next section is called The Decline of Marriage. Over the last 40 years, the leading marriage indicators, empirical descriptions of marriage health and satisfaction in the United States, have been in steady decline. The divorce rate is nearly twice the rate it was in 1960. In 1970, 89% of all births were to married parents. But today, only 60% are. Most tellingly, 
Over 72% of American adults were married in 1960, but only 50% were in 2008. All of this shows an increasing wariness and pessimism about marriage in our culture, and this is especially true of younger adults. They believe their chances of having a good marriage are not great, and even if a marriage is stable, there is, in the their view, the horrifying prospect. That it will become sexually boring, as comedian Chris Rock has asked, "Do you want to be single and lonely, or married and bored?" Many young adults believe that these are indeed the two main options. That is why many aim for something in the middle between marriage and mere sexual encounters, cohabitation with a sexual partner. This practice has grown exponentially in the last three decades.、Uh, in case that didn't make sense, basically saying nowadays, like more and more, people are like,、oh, "I don't want to get married," and instead of going all the way to marriage, they try to do something in the middle, where it's not just like you know, one night stands, but it's not marriage, and it's usually just like. The person you have sex with, you live with them, but you're not married to them, kind of thing. <clears throat> I'll keep going now. Sorry. Today, more than half all people live together before getting married. In 1960, virtually no one did. One quarter of all unmarried women between the ages of 25 and 39 are currently living with a partner, and by their late 30s, over 60% will have done so. Driving this practice are several widespread beliefs. One is the assumption that most marriages are unhappy. After all, the reasoning goes: 50% of all marriages end in divorce, and surely many of the other 50% must be miserable. Living together before marriage, many argue, improves your chances of making a good marriage choice. It helps you discover whether you are compatible before you take the plunge. It's a way to discover if the other person can really keep your interest, if the chemistry is strong enough. Everyone I know who's gotten married quickly and failed to live together first has gotten divorced," said one man in a Gallup survey for the National Marriage Project. The problem with these beliefs and assumptions, however, is that every one of them is almost completely wrong. Interesting. All right. Next section is called the surprising goodness of marriage. Despite the claim of the young man in the Gallup survey, a substantial body of evidence indicates that those who live together before marriage are more likely to break up after marriage. Cohabitation is an understandable response from those who experience their own parents' painful divorces, but the facts indicate that the cure may be worse than the alleged disease. Other common assumptions are wrong as well. While it's true that some 45% of marriages end in divorce, by far the greatest percentage of divorces happen to those who marry before the age of 18. Who have dropped out of high school, and who have had a baby together before marrying. So, if you are a reasonably well-educated with a decent income, come from an intact family, 
and are religious and marry after 25 without having a baby first, your chances of divorce are low indeed. Many young adults argue for cohabitation because they feel they should own a home and be financially secure before they marry. The assumption is that marriage is a financial drain. But studies point to what has been called the surprising economic benefits of marriage. A 1992 study of retirement data shows that individuals who are continuously married had 75% more wealth at retirement than those who were never married or who divorced and did not remarry. Even more remarkably, married men have been shown to earn 10 to 40% more than do single men with similar education and job histories. Why would this be? Some of this is because married people experience greater physical and mental health. Also, marriage provides a sorry, sorry. Also, marriage provides a profound shock absorber that helps you navigate disappointments, illnesses, and other difficulties. You recover your equilibrium faster. Ah, I totally agree with that. Even with dating, like, you know, it's definitely stressful. But at the same time, there's a lot of times I'm comforted faster and I have more stability because, like, even if I fail something, I'm like, oh, Ranya loves me kind of thing. But yeah, anyway, I'll keep going. (laughs) But the increased earnings probably also come from what scholars call marital social norms. Studies show that spouses hold one another to greater levels of personal responsibility and self-discipline than friends or other family members can. Just to give one example, single people can spend money unwisely and self-indulgently without anyone to hold them accountable. But married people make each other practice saving, investment, and delayed gratification. Nothing can mature character like marriage. Mm, that's true definitely I hope I do that for you too where I push you to be more responsible and have more self-discipline I mean you do that for me too there's a lot of times where I don't want to work and you motivate me and these kind of things and yeah when he said the what's it called where did he say where is it uh Okay, I don't know where it is, but yeah. Anyway, I'll keep going. (laughs) Sorry. Perhaps the main reason that young adults are wary of marriage is their perception that most couples are unhappy in their marriages. Typical is a Yahoo forum in which a 24-year-old male announced his decision to never marry. He reported that as he had shared his decision over the past few months to his married friends, Everyone laughed and acted jealous. They all said to him that he was smart. He concluded that at least 70% of married people must be unhappy in their relationships. A young woman, in a response to his post, agreed with this anecdotal evidence. That fit her own assessment of her married friends. Out of 10 married couples, 7 are miserable as hell. She opined and added, I'm getting married next year because I love my fiancé. However, if things change, 
I won't hesitate to divorce him. Recently, the New York Times Magazine ran an article about a new movie called Monogamy by Dana Adam Shapiro. In 2008, Shapiro came to realize that many of his married 30-something friends were breaking up. In preparation for making a film about it, he decided to do an oral history of breaking up, collecting 50 in-depth interviews with people who had seen their marriages dissolve. He did no research, however, on happy long-term marriages. When asked why he did not do that, he paraphrased Tolstoy. All happy couples are the same, which is to say, they are just boring. So it will not be surprising. The Times reporter concluded to say that the film, in the end, takes a grim, if not entirely apocalyptic, view of relationships. The movie depicts two people who love each other very much, but who simply can't make it work. In other interviews about the movie. The filmmaker expresses his belief that it is extraordinarily hard, though not completely impossible, for two modern persons to love each other without stifling one another's individuality and freedom. In the reporter's words, the never-married Shapiro, though he hopes to be married one day, and does not believe his film is anti-marriage, finds an inattractable, intractable difficulty with monogamy. In this, he reflects the typical view of young adults, especially in the more urban areas of the United States. As the pastor of a church containing several thousand single people in Manhattan, I have talked to countless men and women who have the same negative perceptions about marriage. However, they underestimate the prospects for a good marriage. All surveys tell us that the number of married people who say they are Very happy in their marriages is high, about 61 to 62 percent, and there has been little decrease in this figure during the last decade. Most striking of all, longitudinal studies demonstrate that two thirds of those unhappy marriages out there will become happy within five years if people stay married and do not get divorced. This led. University of Chicago sociologist Linda J. Waite to say, "The benefits of divorce have been oversold." Oh, that's actually a fascinating statistic. I don't know how true it is, but if there's a study out there that says that two thirds of unhappy marriages, if they stay together for five years, will become happy if they don't divorce, that's actually. You know, I feel like in our society and culture today, they don't say these kind of things. They're just like, "Oh, if you're unhappy, just break up. Oh, if you're unhappy, just end it." But like, it looks like if you really look at it, if you really look at the data, um, like there can be times where, like, there will be tough times. But if you stick through those tough times, like, you can be happy again. Oh, so that's that's actually something very interesting, and it's also important to remember. Like, it's not like it happens quickly. This this is like five years, you know. Like, imagine you five years ago. Like, how different it was back then. But 
Yeah, that's actually really fascinating. So it's kind of like society today. Oh, someone's calling. Sorry. It's kind of like society today talks about oh, like divorce is the way to go and divorce, but like actually, it's not like that. Like staying together is actually better. That's fascinating. That's actually really fascinating. Okay, I'll continue reading. During the last two decades, the great preponderance of wow, preponderance—I don't even know what that word means. <laughs> the great preponderance. Well, I'm gonna guess that pre is before, ponderance is thinking. So before thinking of research. Huh. And let me just read it. Sorry, we'll go back. During the last two decades, the great preponderance of research evidence shows that people who are married consistently show much higher degrees of satisfaction with their lives than those who are single, divorced, or living with a partner. It also reveals that most people are happy in their marriages, and most of those who are not and who don't get divorced eventually become happy. Hmm. Also, children who grow up in married two-parent families have two to three times more positive life outcomes than those who do not. The overwhelming verdict then is that being married and growing up with parents who are married are enormous boosts to our well-being. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> But I will take a break here. I will add a little music thingy in the middle, and we'll continue with the next next section, the history of marriage. When we come back, <laughs> feels like I'm doing a podcast. Trying to test to see if that uh, works, but、uh, we'll see how that went. I played a song before. Hopefully, you heard it. It's called "A、oh、Love That Will Not Let Me Go," and you know, I hope that that's something that we can do for each other: be a love that will not let each other go. <laughs> anyway, continuing on to the next section. The history of marriage. Belief in the desirability and goodness of marriage was once universal, but that is no longer true. A recent report by the University of Virginia's National Marriage Project concluded the following: less than a third of the brackets high school senior and bracket girls, and only slightly more than a third of the boys, seem to believe. That marriage is more beneficial to individuals than the alternative. Yet this negative attitude is contrary to the available empirical evidence, which consistently indicates the substantial person, personal as well as social benefits of being married compared to staying single or just living with someone. The report argues that the views of most young adults not only are unsupported. By the older consensus, and against the teachings of all major religions of the world, but they are also unsupported 
by the accumulated evidence of the most recent social science. So basically, he's saying like people think that marriage leads to unhappiness and all these bad things, but there's a ton of evidence from religion to even like sociology, like psychology, that show that marriage is really good. And so, yeah, I'm gonna continue reading. So where did this pessimism come from, and why is it so out of touch with reality? Paradoxically. It may be that the pessimism comes from a new kind of unrealistic idealism about marriage, born of a significant shift in our culture's understanding of the purpose of marriage. Legal scholar John Witt Jr. says the earliest ideal of marriage as a permanent contractual union designed for the sake of mutual love, procreation, and protection is slowly giving way to a new reality of marriage. As a terminal sexual contract designed for the gratification of the individual parties, Wright points out that in Western civilizations, there have been several competing views of what the form and function of marriage should be. The first two were the Catholic and Protestant perspectives, though different in many particulars. They both taught that the purpose of marriage. Was to create a framework for a lifelong devotion and love between a husband and a wife. It was a solemn bond designed to help each party subordinate individual impulses and interests in favor of the relationship. To be a sacrament of God's love, the Catholic emphasis, and serve the common good, the Protestant emphasis. Protestants, that's what I am, BTW. Understood marriage to be given by God not merely to Christians, but to benefit the entirety of humanity. Marriage created character by bringing male and female into a binding partnership. In particular, lifelong marriage was seen as creating the only kind of social stability in which children could grow and thrive. The reason that society has a vested interest in the institution of marriage. Was because children could not flourish as well in any other kind of environment. However, Witt explains that a new view of marriage emerged from the 18th and 19th century Enlightenment. Older cultures taught their members to find meaning in duty by embracing their assigned social roles and carrying them out faithfully. During the Enlightenment, things began to shift. The meaning of life came to be seen as the fruit of the freedom of the individual to choose the life that most fulfills him or her personally. Instead of finding meaning through self-denial, through giving up one's freedoms and binding oneself to the duties of marriage and family, marriage was redefined as finding emotional and sexual fulfillment and self-actualization. Very interesting. So he's saying, like, the reason why people are getting disappointed in marriage is not because, you know, marriage itself changed. It's not because, you know,、uh, like how people 
married people are changed, but it's rather because of how the people who view like it's rather because of how people view marriage. So back in the old days, or for other people, marriage is about sacrificing and compromising, and you know, oh, like I want to buy a new car, but. Because I'm married, like I'm going to save this money to buy a house with my wife. You know what I mean? Something like that. Where it was like, oh, there's things you might want to do, but because you're married, you're gonna stay committed. Oh, like, you know, you might want like, you know, to, I don't know, get drunk and hang out like with other people, but because I'm married, I'm gonna hold that back and you know. So it's like that kind of thing, and then、uh, nowadays people view marriage as not something. Oh, I sacrifice something for the good of this relationship, but oh, what can this relationship give to me? So before it was, how can I give to make this relationship good, and now it's how can I take. Like from this relationship, right? One was like giving for something else, and all, the other is taking for yourself. Yeah, I hope that makes sense. And it's very interesting, but I definitely agree. Like, I feel like the reason people divorce is literally because of that. They're like, oh, for myself, it's not good. I mean, obviously, that's not to say there's not good reasons. Like. For example, if a woman is getting beat by her husband, there's a very good reason why she should leave that marriage. But a lot of the times, it's not like that. It's more of,、um, oh, for myself. Like a guy could be like, oh, for myself, I want the freedom, and I don't want to deal with like the burdens of marriage. Or maybe for a girl, it could be like, I want to be able to travel the world, and I don't want to be married. You know what I mean? Whatever it might be. But yeah, okay. So it's like these two different ideas of marriage, and like how it's split off. <clears throat> I'll continue reading. Sorry. Proponents of this new approach did not see the essence of marriage as located in either its divine, sacramental symbolism, or as a social bond, given the, given to benefit the broader human commonwealth. Rather. Marriage was seen as a contract between two parties for mutual individual growth and satisfaction. In this view, married people married for themselves, not to fulfill responsibilities to God or society. Parties should, therefore, be allowed to conduct their marriage in any way deemed beneficial to them, and no obligation to church, tradition, or broader community should be imposed on them. In short. The Enlightenment privatized marriage, taking it out of the public sphere, and redefined its purpose as individual gratification, not any broader good such as reflecting God's nature, producing character, or raising children. Slowly but surely, this newer understanding of me- the meaning of marriage—hey, that's the name of the book—has displaced the older one in Western culture. This change has been a very self-conscious one. Recently, New York Times columnist Tara Parker Pope wrote an article entitled "The Happy Marriage Is the Me Marriage." Here's the quote: 
The notion that the best marriages are those that bring satisfaction to the individual may seem counterintuitive. After all, isn't marriage supposed to be about putting the relationship first? Not anymore. For centuries, marriage was viewed as an economic and social institution, and the emotional and intellectual needs of the spouses were secondary to the survival of the marriage itself. But in modern relationships, people are looking for a partnership, and they want partners who make their lives more interesting, who help them attain valued goals. End quote. This change has been revolutionary, and Parker Pope lays it out unashamedly. Marriage used to be a public institution for the common good, and now it is a private arrangement for the satisfaction of the individuals. Marriage used to be about us, but now it is about me. But ironically, this newer version of marriage actually puts a crushing burden of expectation on marriage and on spouses in a way that more traditional understandings never did. And it leaves us desperately trapped between both unrealistic longings for and terrible fears about marriage. Hmm, interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. I think let's just let's just continue. <laughs> the search for a compatible soulmate. A clear picture of this expectation can be found in a significant study from 2002 by the National Marriage Project entitled Why Men Won't Commit by Barbara DeFoy Whitehead and David Popno. Men are often accused by women of being commitment-phobic, afraid of marriage. The authors of the report respond that, indeed, our investigation of male attitudes indicate there is evidence to support this popular view. They go on to list the reasons that men give for why they would rather not get married, or at least not soon. Most striking, however, is how many men said they wouldn't marry until they found the perfect soulmate, someone very compatible. But what does that mean? When I met my future wife, Kathy, we sensed very quickly that we shared an unusual number of books, stories, themes, ways of thinking about life, and experiences that brought us joy. We recognized in one another a true kindred spirit, and the potential for a bond of deep friendship. But this is not what many mo this is not what many young adults mean when they speak of a compatible soulmate. Or according to Whitehead and Popno, there were two key factors. The first is physical attractiveness and second and sexual chemistry. Hmm. One of the most obvious themes in Shapiro's interviews with recently divorced people was how crucial it was that they had great sex. One woman explained that she had not married her husband because I thought he was hot. Oh wait, sorry, I read that wrong. One woman explained she had married her husband because I thought he was hot. But to her distress, he put on weight and stopped caring about his appearance. The honeymoon was over, and the main way she knew was sex. 
she made it a rule not to have sex unless she really wanted to, but she seldom wanted to. We had settled into a routine where we had only had sex once a week or so, maybe even less. There was no variety and no real mental or emotional rewards. There was none of the urgency or tension that makes sex so great, that sense of wanting to impress or entice someone. In her view, sexual attraction and chemistry were foundational requirements to finding someone compatible. However, sexual attractiveness was not the number one factor that men named when surveying when surveyed by the National Marriage Project. They said that compatibility above all else meant someone who showed a willingness to take them as they are and not change them. More than a few of the men expressed resentment at women who tried to change them. Some of the men who described marital compatibility as finding a woman who will fit into their life. If you are truly compatible, then you don't have to change, one man commented. Hmm. I might have to split this podcast into two sections because you know it's already going to like an hour and i don't want to make you listen for like four hours for one pod one like thing so i might do that but yeah i'll let you know hold up not hold up (laughs) i'll read i'll read one more section how about that all right making men truly masculine is the next section This is a significant break with the past. Traditionally, men married knowing it would mean a great deal of personal alteration. Part of the traditional understanding of marriage was that it civilized men. Men have been perceived as being more independent and less willing and able than women to enter into relationships that required mutual communication, support, and teamwork. So one of the classic purposes of marriage was very definitely to change men and be a school in which they learned how to conduct new, more interdependent relationships. The men in the study revealed these very attitudes that marriage was supposed to correct in the past. The researchers asked the men they were interviewing if they realized that women their age faced pressures to marry and bear children before they were biologically unable. The men knew full well that their postponement of marriage made it more difficult for peer women to achieve their goals, their life goals, but they were unsympathetic. As one put it, that's their issue. Many of the males in the research were adamant that their relationships with the women should not curtail their freedom at all. The report concluded, cohabitation gives men regular access to the domestic and sexual ministrations of a girlfriend while allowing them to lead a more independent life and continue to look around for a better partner. Dang, that's savage. Basically, he's saying that, you know, guys say like, oh, I don't want to get married right now because of all these different reasons, but the number one reason is because they don't want to be tied down. They don't want that kind of responsibility and they don't want to lose their freedom. 
Very interesting. I feel like that wasn't the case for me. I don't know. I've always wanted to get married. The sooner the better, but like, I just felt like there was no one who was like serious about marriage. I mean, until you, I guess. <laughs> Which is why I'm with you. But for me, that was the biggest thing. Like, are they serious about marriage? Like, are they serious about, like, s through thick and thin, through sickness and health, like, staying with me kind of thing? Or, like, yeah. But, yeah. <clears throat> I'll continue. In a New York Times op-ed piece, Sarah Lipton drew up a list of prominent married political men who had refused to let marriage confine them sexually to their spouses. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Dominique Strauss-Kahn, Mark Sanford, John Ensign, John Edwards, Elliot Spritzer, blah, 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 I don't care. In every case, they had resisted the traditional purposes of marriage to change their natural instincts, to rein in passions, to learn denial of one's own desire and to serve others. The conventional explanation for this is that marriage simply doesn't fit the male nature. In particular, it is said the most masculine of men do not do well in marriage. It is argued that a need for sexual conquest, female adulation, and illicit and risky liaisons seem to go along with drive, ambition, and confidence in the alpha male. But Lipton argued that marriage was traditionally a place where males became truly masculine. For most of Western history, the primary and most valued characteristic of manhood was self-mastery. A man who indulged in excessive eating, drinking, sleeping, or sex, who failed to rule himself, was considered unfit to rule his household, much less a polity. Lipton, a professor of history at SUNY Stony Brook, Ooh, I know that. I know a bunch of people that went to that school. Concluded, in the face of recent revelations about the reckless and in self-indulgent sexual conduct of so many of our elected officials, it may be worth recalling that sexual restraint rather than sexual prowess was once the measure of a man. It would be wrong to lay on men the full responsibility for the shift in marriage attitudes. Both men and women today want a marriage in which they can receive emotional and sexual satisfaction from someone who will simply let them be themselves. They want a spouse who is fun, intellectually stimulating, sexually attractive, with many common interests, and who, on top of it all, is supportive of their personal goals and the way they are living now. <laughs> That's not me for you. <laughs> And not you for me, but... <laughs> so I guess we're doing well in that part. We're not like other people in that part. <laughs> and if your desire is for a spouse who will not demand a lot of change from you, then you are also looking for a spouse who is almost completely pulled together, someone very low maintenance without much in the way of personal problems. <laughs> this is definitely not us. We both have a lot of personal problems. You are looking for someone who will not require or demand significant change. You are searching, therefore, for an ideal person, happy, healthy, interesting, content with life. Never before in history 
has there been a society filled with people so idealistic in what they are seeking in a spouse? Wow, fascinating. I thought that one point that was really interesting was like a man used to be judged by how well they can control themselves. But nowadays it's about like how like how many girls they can get and you know like how many girls they had sex with or something and that's a very interesting change in culture sometimes we think like we've moved forward in culture but like and we don't realize like some there are some parts that like we've gotten stuff completely backwards so that's interesting but and like the last part about mm, yeah how in culture these days people are looking for the perfect person to marry when the perfect person doesn't exist (laughs) at least we're both real with each other and we both know that we are very flawed people so we got that going for us Hmm. i love you so much and if you made it to the end congratulations i'm so impressed but Mm, hopefully you enjoyed it and hopefully you're understanding these things i'm gonna stop reading now because my throat actually hurts um yeah because you know i actually barely talk every day so (laughs) this is like the most i'm talking like in a row too because when i talk with you we take breaks and like we're both talking it's just like me reading out loud so yeah i will stop now but i love you I hope you enjoyed this. Um, We're still on chapter one, The Secret of Marriage. Uh, But yeah, we're getting through it. And so I love you so much. And yes, stay tuned for the next episode. This was Eddie. And to my listeners, you, Rania, because you're the only listener. uh, Thank you for listening.